Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm Lydia Akobole, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhut Khan Marawat and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast called Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. Welcome back to the Bereavement Room, guys. I hope you're having a good week. I'm really pleased to introduce today's guest, journalist Amar Mehta. Amar has joined me this evening to talk about his father, who sadly died in 2008. As we continue season one of Bereavement Room, the next few episodes are dedicated to our grandfathers and fathers. Thank you for listening. Amar is going to be talking to us about his father, who sadly died in 2008. Amar was 14 years old. Welcome, Amar. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Been working at home all week, like yourself. Uh, we're currently in a, a global crisis. Uh, how are you finding working at home at the moment? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, the first day I didn't leave my bed until three. Um, and that proved quite unproductive. So I've moved into mm-hmm. the living room um, the last few days. But um, we've got all the tech set up with my work so we're all communicating and video calling every day which which is a bit weird but it's fine mm. so far I guess it's it's the times we live in where we, I mean uh, to prevent the spread of coronavirus I think it's obviously yeah. important to be working from home. Exactly yeah we've, we've got to protect ourselves and everyone else yeah. uh, it's a really anxious time for everyone uh, I'm going to be honest I went out today but I went out because I need to get some food in um because I don't have any food so (laughs) I went out today to go and get chicken wings because I really fancy like a chicken dinner tonight but unfortunately my Turkish grocer ran out of chicken wings so then I went to my Afghan grocer and he's also out of chicken wings he's like you need to come back tomorrow uh which was unusual but um it's really hard to find food at the moment so that's also a very weird thing I don't know if you've run into any trouble (laughs) with trying to get food because of everyone's panic and stockpiling uh yeah yeah so yeah I've been going to the supermarket sort of every day with my girlfriend to try and get as much supplies as we can but I'm I'm a bit baffled as to why people are stockpiling bottled water I I Mm. don't realize that they can get tap water yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's mad uh people are just stocking up their trolleys with liters of water and I I can't get my head around that either but I hope that things calm down and the you know the anxiety levels and the panic I it's just such a it's such an odd thing um so yeah it's really strange outside be a fun story to tell our tell our grandkids when we're all old and not not able to leave the houses because of health problems. But mm. it's about coronavirus twenty twenty and when we're all locked in. Mm. Yeah, when we're all locked in that yeah. the year that was cancelled. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, well, anyway, let's move on from coronavirus because I think a lot of people are probably fed up with hearing about it anyway now. But um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's really great to have you here. I am curious to know that we connected in a group, like a professional BAME group. So I'm just kind of curious to know what made you want to come on the podcast and tell your story. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the group we connected on um, is is for young professional BAME journalists and creatives um, who who are trying to just build, build up a contact book. And I saw your saw your post, and I I thought it's it's been almost eleven, twelve years since my since my dad passed away, and I thought it's a it's a good time to maybe it's a good platform to speak to someone openly about it and share my experience because I mean. But I don't know what it's like for other people, but I know being sort of a, an Indian Indian man now, it's, it can sometimes be difficult to to open up and talk about bereavement and loss um, or any anything remotely emotional with family members or or friends. Um, so I, I thought I'd use the platform of a podcast to to speak to speak about my experience. That's lovely. Thank you so much for wanting to come and tell your story. And you're right, as a man, as an Indian man, it can be hard to talk about something so painful, an experience that you went through. And it's great that you feel that some time has passed and you're ready to talk about it. Um, so thank you and well done. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So kind of talk us through, so, you know, so me and my listeners kind of get a gist of your background, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do. You said you're Indian and I understand you're a reporter. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a journalist at a magazine called The Lawyer Magazine, um, where I report on the civil courts, focusing on sort of high value, big ticket disputes um, and also cover the business of law. Um, before that, um, I wrote for a local paper in South London called the Wandsworth Times and the Richmond and Twickenham Times. Uh-huh. Where I was a news reporter um, and I sort of got into that through my time at university where I studied international relations but on the side I did a lot of student media with the University of Radio Nottingham and Impact magazine mm-hmm. uh, and that really grew my interest in, in the media industry and wanting to be a journalist so I sort of pursued that as a career um, after I graduated. Mm, amazing, amazing, well done. Um, what's it like? It's litigation and law, so what's that like, reporting on that? I mean, do you go to the courts or...? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I go to the courts um, quite a lot. There's just two of us who cover the same beat um, mm. regularly in courts, regularly sitting in on disciplinary tribunals where lawyers have been a bit naughty. Um, mm. Interesting. Um, it's, it's really interesting. It's it's sort of a ever changing landscape um, with with various elements um, com- coming into it. Like a, a lot of litigation coming out of Brexit, and I've been speaking to a lot of barristers and partners at law firms this week, and they're they're um, prophesizing that there could be a lot of disputes coming out of coronavirus with various insurance disputes or contractual mm. disputes, sort of very in the moment and in the now and anything you've seen in the news has a legal element on the background and we sort of report on that to to our readers who are who are lawyers and barristers. Wow that's amazing amazing well done you sounds like a really great job to be in a great space to be in so yeah sounds good I look forward to hearing more about that um 
we're going to kind of get into your experiences and kind of what happened with your dad. I mean, you were 14 years old at the time. Um, there's no sort of neat and tidy way to kind of go back to the story. So just sort of freestyle, you know, go with how you want to tell it. Um, kind of where were you at the time? What happened? Kind of talk us through your journey. So, yeah, I mean, we we were living in America at the time. Um, when I was 11, and me, my brother, my mum and my dad all um, emigrated to Georgia in in the States uh, where it was sort of my dad's dream to sort of follow the American dream and start his own career there, start his own path there. So we, we moved over there where we, we knew we knew people, we knew relatives and family friends in Georgia. So um, we, we were there for about four years where for most of that he owned a, a petrol station uh, or a gas station as they'd say it there mm. um, in Atlanta. And then he sold that and he had his own business um, sort of selling wholesale game machines to to petrol stations sort of the if you ever see those casino machines in in, in petrol stations or casinos mm. um, apply them um, to yeah. to stations across across the state um and yeah that, that's sort of where I was at the time I was sort of in high school playing soccer or football um there um, sort of settled down um and then it was on the 25th of September 2008. I, I remember the day quite clearly, actually. It was sort of in the morning, I just went off to school as normal. And then at around lunchtime, um, my head teacher, I get called on by my head teacher saying I'm getting picked up. I was like, oh, this is weird. So my aunts have picked me up and I go home and my mum's in tears. And I'm sort of like a bit confused with my, with my brother, who's younger, four years younger than me, so he was 11 at the time. Mm. Um, we're sort of a bit confused as to what's happened and where we've been told that he was in a car accident and um, oh, gosh. not quite made it. Um, so that was like quite a shocking moment. Um, I didn't really know what to do because obviously my, my mum was sort of inconsolable and my brother was just a bit confused and as you would be if you're, if you're 11 and you don't really know what's going on. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, we sort of the, the, he was driving to to a job and was um was on his phone and missed a stop sign and uh, a car uh, sideswiped him i mean it was completely his fault but unfortunately he didn't make it he sort of apparently died almost instantly um and that's that's sort of what happened we called our family back in the uk um, because all of my dad's family, his sisters, his, uh, my granddad, his dad, um, were all in the UK and London still um, and they, they all sort of flew over for the funeral and, and then so that happened in September and in December that year we moved back to the UK where I sort of started school here. Wow that's so sudden and unexpected and shocking, really hard thing to go through as a child um for you and your brother do, I mean do you kind of I mean it was a, a while ago I'm just kind of wondering what that day looked like what the next day looked like for you and your family um sort so, of yeah what do you remember I, I I remember those those days and weeks quite clearly to be honest okay 
we we were I guess we were lucky in a sense that we had a lot of good people around us who who mm. immediately came to our aid. Um, just remember trying to support my my mum as much as possible. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I did understand that like I sort of had to step up to the plate and be mm. like a father figure to my to my younger brother and the man of the household. Um, my mm. my from the UK or sort of flew over immediately um, and we, we had a we had a good support structure around us and and everything happened so fast like the funeral was a couple of days after and to be honest I just sort of wanted to go back to school I didn't know how to I, I, I don't think I'd quite processed it and um, mm. my school were told me to take as much time as possible away um, they, they offered me counseling and I don't think it was till until a few years later when I was at university where I quite understood what had happened to me really. So the the counselling that the school offered you, um, so do what does that look like in the States? Uh, are you able to talk us through that and what that looked like for you? Did you take it up at the time or? Yeah, I mean I, I, I think um, it was from what I remember it was sort of compulsory if you if you have this sort of major life incident in your life at, at school they sort of make you go see the guidance counsellor um, and it's it's really quite informal you just go into an office and they just ask you how you're doing make sure you're okay um, all the teachers are quite um, that were really supportive um, and helpful they sort of and all my friends everyone was really supportive um, and it really showed me the community feeling that that was built in the place that we were living in in mm. Georgia um, I, I don't think I took the counselling up as much as I maybe should have um, mm. but that because I didn't feel like I needed to at the time uh, yeah that was and in hindsight that's probably because I was still processing you're in shock and I, yeah I guess I was in shock as well Mm. Yeah, it's a lot to take on uh, at 14, especially when you've also got a younger brother and, you know, then being there for your mum. And I I think when that happens with children, often it's that sense of wanting to look after others. And especially if you're the oldest, there seems to be that sort of feeling of wanting to protect everyone um, and being the man of the house, as you said. Uh, which is, is something I've heard quite a lot uh, on the podcast. So, where I mean, did you have the funeral quite soon after? Do you remember much of the funeral? And yeah, um, it was like three, four days after in, in America. Um, me and me and my brother, um, we gave a sort short speech, um, uh, which which I didn't find that difficult I, I guess because I didn't quite understand what was what was happening um but mm. I think the I, I think the the support next next um network that I had with my family around me made made those few days a lot easier um mm. and I think we just we, we just reminisced about my dad and what he was like when he was younger um but I, mm. I could see that everyone in my family was was broken because he was he was quite young he was in his uh, mid 40s um, wow. and he, he was really close to his three sisters and his dad was obviously his only he's lost his only son so I, I did, oh gosh and that was obviously quite upsetting for everyone but yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a bit of a it's just those 
weeks moved really quickly. And to be honest, then at the time, I just wanted to go back to school and go back to playing football. Mm. Um, but um, obviously, I had I needed the time to process it, which which I got and which everyone offered me. Um, mm. But it, it was sort of I was sort of more angry that I would have to move back to England than angry at what had happened or upset about what happened. I guess when you say you went back, you wanted to just get back to school, resume normality. Um, was that what it was like? It was a routine for you. You just wanted to get back into the routine, um, knowing that there'll be some uncertainty about having to uproot your life and come back to the UK. Yeah, I mean, it was partly that and partly because I, I enjoyed school. Um, like I enjoyed, enjoyed learning and um, I just wanted to, I didn't want to fall behind really. And I knew one of the reasons my dad moved us over to, to America was so he felt that we would get a better education there. So I just wanted to make sure I kept learning and kept trying to sort of make him proud by keeping on with schooling. Mm. How old were you? So, sorry, did you move to the States from India or from the UK? UK. So I was born in born in London, um, in Tooting in South London. Mm. Uh, then I went through primary school and around 11 I moved to America. We talk about the funeral, um, that you gave a speech, like a eulogy, is that right? Does that kind of look like in your culture and did you have, what kind of funeral did you have? Was it a religious one or? Yeah, so because my mum was quite inconsolable at the time so she didn't have any input on on the funeral and my my dad's sisters were all making their way from England. So it was organised by some family friends who who were really religious um, and so it was a super religious funeral, which um, sometimes still annoys me because my dad wasn't that religious and he would have hated it. Um, mm. But I mean, it was it was a really long ceremony, and, and me and my brother gave a speech, and my um, cousins, who my dad was quite close to, really close to, um, gave a speech, um, and it was sort of a, a big sort of Hindu ceremony, and at the end, um, uh, he was cremated. So did you write your speech yourself or someone else wrote it for you to read out? Uh, I I wrote it myself. Um, It was sort of more, it wasn't more of, it wasn't really a eulogy. It Mm. was more a message to my dad, I guess. Um, Okay. My my brother wrote a short bit as well. um, So we sort of wrote it together. Oh, lovely. Did that help at the time to do that together? Or kind of, how how do you feel about that now? I think if I hadn't done that, if we hadn't done that, we would have regretted it for for a long time. And I think I wanted to get up and say say some words um, about my dad and what 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 he was what he meant to me. Um, mm. And yeah, so I think it 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 helped um, in the sense that I wouldn't regret it later on down the life not not having made a speech. Mm. Yeah. No, I know the feeling. I yeah I get that um I guess something like that would play on your mind later on um it's almost like a connection or the last thing that you do that finality of saying goodbye yeah um so you said you scattered the ashes uh was that in the states then or in a special place that you went to as a family or no it was just um don't even know where it was. It was just this random river in America, in near where we were living, that we just did it there. Um, oh, okay. We didn't 
meant he obviously didn't mention anything about where he'd want to be laid to rest. Um, so I think he, he would have preferred to have been laid to rest in America. So that's that's what we did. Yeah, and that was where his dream was. His dream followed him to the States, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So a really hard thing to go through as a child. Um, so we will come to what that looks like for you now as an adult, because you're going to be 26 this year. Um, so how long after that did you move to the UK? Was it quite quickly or sort of over time? Um, so he passed away in the September and we moved back in December. Oh, my gosh. It was quite quick. Oh, gosh. So you had to say goodbye to all your friends and everyone that knew you and your environment? Yeah, we, we were sort of uprooted quite quickly. It was, um, I think it was initially we were going to wait for the school year to finish in the summer and then move back, as, as that would have been a more sensible sort of transition. Mm-hmm. But uh, because I was uh, 14 going on to 15 at the time, um, I would have been doing my GCSEs. So if, I, if we hadn't moved back when we did, I would have been a year behind. In, in yeah. Year. So I sort of came in in December and I, I'd already missed a, um, half of year 10. Um, so I had to sort of catch up on all that work. So if I had missed a year of it, I would have been a year behind in my education. Um, mm. which obviously, wouldn't have been ideal. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing the curriculum is, the, the, the American curriculum is very different to the UK was it did it feel very different or I'm assuming it is it was so much easier there I was doing like college level classes and sort of top student in all my classes or one of the top students getting sort of all A's and B's um, and then I came back here and I was like people are actually quite bright and articulate and smart and I, I was sort of I was still I wasn't quite top top set student but I was still up there in the sort of A's and B's, but it was sort of, it's just, a, it was, if you picture the films, like something like High School Musical, it's um, schooling's a lot like that without music, if you mm. sort of know what I mean. Um, mm. They've got, they're, they're very collegiate, they they have like homecoming, they love their sports, um, but and they don't have uniform as well. So it's those type of things that were, were different but obviously having grown up in the UK having gone through the primary school system here I sort of knew what it was like. Mm, That's really really interesting so knowing that and then coming back and joining the end of year 10 is it because you missed the first half um what I mean obviously your dad had died and you've got this transition of transitioning back into London life um joining a new school making new friends do you remember what that felt like for you as a grieving teenager um yeah so it wasn't it didn't feel like I was coming into a new world because Mm. I I moved back to Tooting um because we'd kept house and my granddad was living there so I was in the same house okay school I ended up going to Graveney um was the school I would have ended up going to if I had stayed here. A lot okay. of my from primary school were here, so it was sort of like a reunion with some primary school friends. Oh, lovely. But 
it, yeah. it was weird in the sense that I saw I had to on on my plate I had these GCSEs all of a sudden that I had to do, which was the most important thing for any sort of young teenager in the UK. Um, that was hard. I mean, I I found sort of um, the the people that I did know. They'd obviously changed quite a lot because it had been four years and they were we knew each other at primary school and now they were near almost 16 so mm. we had changed we'd all changed quite a lot which was which was strange we ended up not really being friends which was fine um and completely normal but that 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 was a bit weird at the time um and i i mean the, the one thing that i didn't get in america which i got when i came back to the uk was like everyone's love affair with football and um, um, a big Man U fan and my dad was a big Liverpool fan so I sort of came back to being able to watch and play football on a regular basis again which I was really excited about. Mm. Yeah it's really nice when you've got that it's that familiarity and something you shared with your father and and it is UK culture really we love our football at the end of the day um so was that something that you and your dad used to do together you had like banter or on the teams that you supported yeah so I think I think one of the reasons I became a Man U fan was was sort of to go against my dad obviously Man U <laughs> a bit of rivals yeah uh, and like, throughout primary school I mean I had dreams of becoming a professional but I didn't quite realize that I was nowhere near good enough um uh, but he would um, I, I'd play for school teams um in primary school and he would picked me up and he was like did you see he was at the gate watching you today he was like, I was like no he's like Sats Ferguson um and stuff like that he'd like try and tell me that Man U's manager was watching us play when clearly he didn't <laughs> or if I um if I ever wanted anything he'd be like I'd, I'd get you this but as long as you become a, a Liverpool fan um and I'd obviously say no and not get something but always stay loyal to, to Man U. Oh it sounds like you and your dad had a really nice relationship you had a lot of banter and that was something really special that you guys shared. Um, is it something you often think about now? Um, yeah uh, yeah I mean it was on when, when he passed away in the first few years it was it was something that I, I thought about and, and missed watching football with him um, we I mean in America we used to wake up early morning on a Saturday to watch the games together me him and my brother who's also a, a big football fan and um that was that was quite hard that we I didn't I didn't have that sense anymore being able to watch football with him um but it was sort of I sort of had my brother there with me who was also a big football fan so we we still had each other mm. yeah it's nice I think it's nice um it's an adjustment isn't it it's like a new normal yeah it was it was, it was a new new normal um and it, it was a bit weird moving back but it, it was moving back to familiarity um, yeah which made things a lot easier and it was moving back to family because at mm. the end we, we didn't have any family in america they were family friends from from my mum's side from years ago um, okay so moving back and reconnecting with my cousins who when we moved back were like four and five so they were all quite young 
um, and we're, we're all really close. Even now, we're still really close, and it was it was nice having that sense of family. Mm. And for your mum as well, for your mum as well to kind of be with family, and you know, it's a really we, we all experience grief in different ways. Do you kind of? Rec- I know your your mum's not here to speak for herself, obviously, but do you kind of recall what that was like for your mum? I think it was tough for my mum. Uh, as you'd expect, but um, all her family were also in India. So she she married my dad in '93. Um, it was sort of a arranged marriage type thing, um, and she was in India. So she uprooted to the UK where all my dad's family are. Um, so for her, it was a choice between going back to her family in India, where she would have felt a lot happier, I guess, or doing what was best for me and my brother and moving back to the UK where we had that sense of familiarity um, she she chose that and um, I'm so grateful for everything she's done um, and I, I can't imagine how hard it's been for her but she's always so a lot of strength mm-hmm. um, my brother and supported us through all of our endeavours yeah it sounds like you guys are really tight um, you've got a tight sort of connection there so are you taking your mum out on Sunday for Mother's Day is it this Sunday or the week after yes yeah, this Sunday um I, I was going to take her out but mm. everything's in lockdown now so oh yeah of course god I've nearly forgot about that oh uh, god uh, I would just I'll just go home and uh, have dinner with her or lunch with her or something oh that'll be nice that'll be really nice and uh I hope you guys are cooking it as well <laughs> yeah I, I, yeah if there's something that she she likes, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to talk about cancelling there. Thank you for sharing, kind of going back in time and sharing that experience. And I, I know we talked a little bit about cancelling in the school um, over in the States, but then you, you mentioned that you really had cancelling when you got to university. So talk me through your journey. And obviously, if there's anything you don't want to share, you don't have to. So... What was that like? Yeah, so obviously when I moved back to the UK, um, when I was joining the school, obviously they they knew, all the teachers knew about what had happened and um, they were all really supportive. I, I had I had, um, I had had the opportunity to meet with a counsellor once a week, which which I did just to talk through how I'm settling in and stuff, and he was just making sure that I was okay. Um, but it wasn't until, I think it was the second year of my university where I had, like, I had, a really good friends group around me but one of me and one of my friends at the time my best friend we we fell out and that was really upsetting for me um and that sort of brought back feelings of loss um that I experienced when my dad passed away and it sort of echoed the same the same sort of feelings mm-hmm. um, and it sort of I sort of I was really upset at the time and um I spoke to my friends who were who were who was studying medicine at the time and, and they said go speak to your GP and uh, the university will offer you some counselling so I was offered counselling for the university for, for about six weeks which I took up um, and that was really helpful just talking about what had happened talking about why I why the feelings of loss for my friend were I was I was relating that back to the feeling of loss for my dad and that really helped me sort of understand what had happened when I was when my dad passed away and 
it helped helped me almost grieve because really when I went to university it was the first time I was away from home since it had happened uh, I had really been away for long periods of time at all mm-hmm. uh, so I, I was I was at times I was sort of struggling with, with that making sure that my family were all okay while also being able to sort of enjoy university yeah sounds like a lot had happened there and you're right uh, the feelings of as you discovered in your counselling, um, you experienced a loss and it triggered kind of what happened to you when your dad passed away. Uh, it's really hard. Um, so did you have really poor mental health at that time then when that triggered and that's why you kind of went to your university counsellor and obviously being away from home? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, um, I, I mean, I, I just, I was just quite down. I, I it was for about a week before Christmas I, I just didn't feel like doing anything um social I uh, didn't feel like leaving the house or anything um and it was um and then the GP said it sounds like it's it's my sort of mild depression and anxiety um and that the counselling really helped um and uh, it, it all happened around Christmas so I I went back home for Christmas holidays and that really helped um mm. and it was sort of I guess the timing of it was good because if it had happened before, I probably wouldn't have gone home and might not have seen anyone. But um, I think the friends I had with me gave me some really good advice about what to do and how how I could help myself and um, the, the support I, I had and always had around have around me is, is really um, helps me when I'm if I'm ever sort of down or not in the right frame of mind. That's really great. It's really great when we have that support network from friends and family that check in and kind of guide us in in that direction when we're not ourselves. And it's really, really important if anyone suspects that someone is down or displaying sort of uncharacteristic sort of triggers or feelings or kind of withdrawing, check in on your friends and family. Please that you had that support around you at the time um and that it's helped you in your process which kind of brings me on if you don't mind me asking your university counsellor um kind of was it a BAME university counsellor or was it just sort of whoever was the counsellor at the university I think it was just that whoever was available at the time for those for those six weeks really Mm. um she she was lovely she made me feel really comfortable I think the only thing that I, I found um that wasn't quite working for me was was the early the early times and um, I'm not I'm not much of a morning person and the sessions were at eight in the morning sometimes so I, I would have to sort of drag myself out of bed often after after I'd been out the night before or I'd late the night before um mm. So I mean, it, I mean, she was lovely and she was really understanding. And if I had to cancel a session, whether it was because work was too busy at university or I just couldn't make it on that day, she'd rearrange it, and, and she was really, really helpful. Okay, it sounds like she was good. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have a bad word to say about it. I mean, I, I got the help that I needed, and I've read that people at university haven't got the help that they needed as quickly as they might have needed. But from my experience, it, it was it was good. But I, I can see. I mean, it did. This all happened in December of second year, and I didn't get the help that I needed until maybe March or April. Um, so it, it did take a few months 
for, for the referral and everything to happen. And if someone needs needs the help immediately, they might have struggled. But I I felt like I felt like I didn't need the help immediately because I had the support network around me to to help me cope at the time. Yeah, and that's really important. You talked about something very important there. Uh, sometimes if it's immediate and perhaps if you don't have the right support network around you there often is a bit of a waiting list Uh, it's something that I've spoken about with my guests on a daily basis but also in my day job I know that there is a bit of time before the sessions actually kick in there is also some issues with if you are from BAME background or whatever label you want to give it ethnic minority BME I lose count of all the labels that we have I don't particularly like using them um, but I realize that they're helpful in fighting inequality and things like that Um, from a BAME perspective often hear that it's really important who their counsellor is and some would prefer a BAME counsellor do you mind if I ask was it a BAME counsellor did that matter to you or you you weren't you know too concerned about that upon reflection uh, it was it was a it was a white woman. Um, I wasn't really that concerned about about it. Um, I, it didn't really impact my what I would have said or how I would have acted around the counselor. I mean, from from my point of view, I, I guess that the whole job of a counselor is to have some empathy and to be qualified to to give the right advice and guidance. And um, I felt like the counselor did have all those credentials. Um, I mean, like, I can see the perspective of wanting a, a sort of Asian or a BAME um, counsellor, um, depending on someone's situation and what they're going through. But but for my situation at the time, I didn't feel like it mattered what the background of someone was. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important that if something works for you, you carry on, you carry on. Um, and it's really great that you had a really good experience and that worked out for you at the time because it's what you needed um and yeah you're right it's all really down to the connection and the empathy as you say and what that person's circumstances are um so yeah thank you thank you for sharing that thank you so did, have you had any did you have any more counseling after university or you you kind of you feel like that really helped you in your journey then and that's you know you process what you needed to at the time yeah I haven't had anything since to be honest I think um that's that time at university really helped me um almost enlightened me as to what I had gone through and find ways to to cope in in my own in my own way and manage it in my own way but also understand that it's okay to, to maybe not be completely um, strong-minded and happy, happy all the time and that you will have ups and downs, but um, it's important to, to be able to talk to someone. Um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, I've, I've got a great family network around me, but I've also, um, my girlfriend's um, brilliant and I can talk to her about anything. Um, mm-hmm. it's, I haven't felt like I've needed to have counselling anymore or... I feel like I, I am able to sort of cope in my own ways. Yeah, you've got your coping mechanisms and a great network. 
which yeah. is fanta- which is fantastic. So as a man, because I don't get many male guests, I don't know if you noticed, the majority of my guests are women, not because I haven't tried. I'm trying really hard to like get you guys to come on the podcast and talk to me. As a man, like how easy is it to talk about your emotions? Because we know that mental health is really poor with men and it's particularly if you're black or Asian, mental health is very, very poor. Kind of like, how easy is it for you to talk about your emotions? Because you said now that it's okay to not be okay and to talk. Kind of, was there a time where that was very difficult for you? And since then, it's become easier. What What is that like for you guys? I mean, t- to be honest, I think um, as, as as maybe it's been previously discussed on, on other episodes, um, that there's a there's a big stigma attached to talking about mental health um, in in sort of Indian culture, and um, it's almost brushed aside and not seen as important. Um, and I think that that seeps into any young person, any young Indian man's mind when they're when they're growing up. If they don't see their their elders talking about mental health and talking about how they're feeling, then they won't see it as the norm. Um, and I, I think, well, I mean, for large parts of my upbringing, I've, I've never talked about how I was feeling um, to, to anyone and it, even now when I when I do talk about it I generally tend to talk about it to, to the female figures in my life whether that's my aunts my mum or my girlfriend um, I mean I, I occasionally talk about it with one of my best friends um, who's, who's a guy um, but generally I've, I've only ever spoken to, to the female uh, figures in my life and hardly ever opened up to any of the male figures in my life and um, not not that I wouldn't but it just felt like it's easier to talk to talk to um, female figures in my life than it is the male figures. Is that because um, there is you know I don't have statistics to back this up but I think there are stats to back this up that women are more open in talking about being more open with their feelings and emotions and that that you felt safe to do so, and that maybe it might have been a bit unsafe to go there by talking to a male figure, or is it just because you've got more women figures in your life in general? Um, I think partly a bit of both, and and also I think it's the fact that obviously growing up as a British Indian person, you mm. you grow up in this in this culture where part part of you is is Indian, and you've got the traditions of of an Indian culture. But the other part of you, with your with your friends and maybe your cousins and your uncles, it's it's almost like a, a lad culture where you don't really talk about emotions and you don't you almost feel weakened if you talk about emotions. So it's it's sort of the, the cultures that we we have embedded ourselves into in in society almost prevent Indian men from sometimes talking about their feelings. But yeah. that's obviously just my point of view and. Um, People, people might disagree with that, but I mean, I, I feel like it's not not helpful to for for a man growing up to, on the one hand, not be able to talk to talk to or not not be able to see elders talk about their feelings, and then have friends who also ridicule someone for talking about feelings. Mm. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. Um, thank you so much for sharing that and there are grassroots organisations within the Indian community I think, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly but I think Taraki is one of them that particularly work with Indian men or is it Punjabi community 
and it's it's I think it's just for men it's a mental health sort of organization grassroots startup um I don't know if you've heard of them. I think it's Taraki. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I haven't heard of that, but obviously it's it's important to have charities like that to raise awareness for for issues and for for issues which aren't addressed sort of more generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a. It's really great now that there's a lot more sort of support out there. Um, and you're right. It you know grief and mental health manifest in so many different ways within our communities whether you're Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, um, Nigerian, Ghanaian you know from a black Caribbean background it's we all have these different sort of stigmas and taboos and cultures that have been embedded uh, historically and it's good to talk it is really good to talk I must add that um, looking at sort of my generation and generations below me, Mm. it it does feel like that, I mean, just the simple fact that me and you were talking on this podcast um, shows that that there is a a change in the tide. And um, I I can see that there are are more sort of Indian men or BME men who are open to talking about their sort of mental health um, and talking about their feelings um, and... It's it's a time that's happening. It's something. It's a change that's happening slowly. But mm. I guess once once my generation get old and we're in our forties um, and have kids, we will be open to talking about it and we'll pass that on to to the next generation. And slowly, it will become the norm in our culture. Absolutely, absolutely, it will. And that shift is happening right now. Which brings me to kind of I wanted to ask you about your grief today you know at the end of the day you're 25 you're gonna be 26 this year um we carry our grief no matter how long it's been and how much time it has passed we carry it in different ways and I'm just curious to know for someone that is 25 don't know about you a lot of my friends um they have their parents and they're always really shocked or just people that I meet at work because I'm slightly younger. Uh, they're always really shocked when they're like, Oh, you don't have parents. And, um, you know, they're always really shocked and it's usually because of my age. And I was just wondering what that's like for you and your work and your social environment. When you meet new people, do you ever get, is there anything that really annoys you or, you get kind of a surprised look when people might learn in one way or another that you don't have a dad? Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I only ever tell people that about my dad when I know them well enough to know their reaction. Um, it, it's not something I will have vocalised to to many people um, mm. on like an initial meeting or meet, like but meeting them quite immediately. Mm. Um, and, but the people I, I have told have generally been quite empathetic um, mm. and understanding of of it. And, um, and yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people I've, I've told have been, been quite understanding, but they've also not tried to sort of monocoddle me and treat me as any different. Um, mm. that, I think what frustrates me most is when people feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm sort of like, it's, it's, in, in my mind, it's just like, this has happened now um obviously it's it's sad and it was really upsetting at the time and sometimes it is upsetting 
now, but it's sort of, I have to sort of get on with life and make sure I build, build a future for myself, which would have made my dad proud. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess what I'm getting at is, um, I mean, there's things that I've heard from some of my guests and just working in this community. Um, I don't know, something might come up like someone you don't really know that well, but you know, might be like, yeah, I'm going to play football with my dad or like it's Father's Day or anything like that. I was just wondering, do you ever get any triggers of that? Or you're just kind of like, oh, it's not, you know, it doesn't really bother you. Um, I think I've um, over the years I've, I've sort of grasped that other other people obviously have strong uh, have strong connections with their parents and um, like I'm, I'm obviously super happy for them and initially in the first few years when I when I was younger it was it was upsetting when I when I saw people hanging out with their sort of their parents and I couldn't do that anymore but but now it's sort of like everyone has their sort of different situations in life and that person might have both their parents but they might be going through a hundred other issues which I I don't have to deal with um so I, I sort of I sort of don't it doesn't that's not really a trigger for me but it's more of a trigger for me when it comes to sort of major events in my life sort of like birthdays and anniversaries where my dad would be but he's not there that that those periods can be somewhat the obsessive milestones. yeah the milestones isn't it yeah it, yeah like when you went to university and graduated yes um, and sort of his birthday my birthday like my brother's birthday the anniversary of his passing um those, those are times when when can be when i can um get quite upset sometimes um mm-hmm. or just or just like missing him really but um when you say upset what does that look like for you is that withdrawing not crying or not talking to anyone or just inner sadness it's just sort of inner sadness sort of like if I'm celebrating my birthday um or my brother's birthday or someone's birthday who my dad knew and it's sort of like all right my dad was here like he'd be having loads of time sort of it's sort of a missing rather than sort of overtly being sad Yeah, I know. I know the feeling. I know. Um, well, we don't all have the same feelings, but I, I get what you're saying. I get where you're coming from. Um, I think I must also add that sometimes I have feelings of anger towards. Do you? Um, because obviously the, the the way he the way he passed was he was I mean he was on his phone, um, talking, um, and he missed a stop sign, and it was something that he did quite a lot. Um talking on his phone and it's um it's sort of something that was completely preventable if he had just taken precautions for his own safety um and it's, it's sort of like sometimes I feel anger I was like you you've done this um and lost your life but you've also sort of destroyed my mom's life um and left us sort of on our own mm. yeah that anger is really normal that is a normal reaction yeah and how how does that make you you knowing that you get angry by his actions how does that was that something you intensely felt at the time and still feel has that changed much over the time how do you process that um I didn't really feel it much at the time it was it was more when I began to understand mm. what happened um and when I sort of look back on what happened I think it just sort of made me angry as to how preventable it was 
Mm. How do you reconcile that in your mind then, knowing that it was preventable and it was something that you often did? How do you reconcile his actions? I'm just, uh, well, I just sort of think that he, he was the type of person who was sort of carefree and um, like loved to laugh and didn't, he, like, he was just sort of such a loving person that I, I think that he, it was like he, he made his own choices in life and he stuck by them, which I admire and want to see, put, put that into my own character. Um, mm. it's, it's sort of like, I'll get angry, but it won't be for a long period. It won't be for days or weeks or anything. It'll be maybe a few minutes, maybe an hour or so, maybe a few hours. But then I'll sort of realise that it's it's happened now. I can't dwell on that. And I have to remember sort of the memories that I did have with him. Mm, absolutely yeah we all make mistakes or a wrong decision for a split second that can change our lives and these things do happen unfortunate unfortunately um and yeah I think the way that you're that you processing that over the years and now is I think that's really beautiful the way that you are going through that journey of you know what happened at the time how you feel about it now and just how that experience is for you and I think it's great that you know you want to make your dad proud and carry on and continue continue your life in the best way that you can um but anger I feel anger um for me (laughs) anger is something that I know very well uh in my own grief and I haven't actually told my story on the podcast yet because I'm leaving it till the end of the season but um anger is something that's popped up with all of my other guests uh previously but with myself it's something that I'm very familiar with but I'm fortunate that my anger is productive (laughs) it's really productive I actually do a lot of work when I'm angry and um and I know anger looks different for lots of different people. It can be for a split second or questioning something or analysing something or physically punching something or, you know, getting shit done. Um, but it can manifest in so many different ways. So it's it's really interesting to hear how how you experience your anger with regards to what happened with your father. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes it's, it's anger, but it's also frustration. And um, but I mean it's not like it I feel that way on a regular basis it's sort of generally throughout the day I'm like completely fine might not even think about my dad um sort of just getting on with with day-to-day life and Mm. working hard and enjoying life as much as possible despite lockdown because of coronavirus yeah and that's and that's okay (laughs) exactly yeah um no I'm I um just, you know sometimes I would feel guilty that I might not be you know my dad only died recently I think I told you because we had actually rearranged this interview um I sometimes because it's so recent and I've also also come back to the podcast within a month sometimes I feel guilty but then I'm just like I have to carry on with my life like I can sit in my bed and cry which I do but 
it's not helpful to me and I do have to carry on and it's not that I'm not thinking about my father or that I don't think about my mum I do it's in my back like in the back of my mind always it's with me that I am waking up and I am going to work if that makes sense yeah I mean I, I completely get that when it happens immediately the, the wound is so fresh but over time it scars over and fades into the back of people's minds and and then every now and then it will crop up and you'll remember it or it'll cause you some grief but generally it, over time it will it will become just a just another scar that you you get through life mm, absolutely absolutely it's a scar that you carry yeah so sure. I wanted to talk about UK compassionate leave with you and as someone who works closely with legal stuff and reporting and things like that I mean did you hear about Jack's Law a couple of months ago are you familiar with that yes I, I did um, I, I don't quite remember what it exactly was but um, I, I do remember reading about Jack's Law yeah so what happened was the campaigner and oh god I can't remember her name it might be Lucy but I might be wrong uh, the campaigner who helped get that law passed and it comes into effect uh next month what happened was that her child died um in a tragic incident and she was campaigning for parental leave because there is no uk compassionate law policy per se uh there isn't actually any legislation and she wanted something for parents i think initially she might have campaigned for everyone but what for for whatever reason it then just became for parents i'm not sure what the full story was i hope to get her on the podcast to find out one day um but yeah i uh parents get two weeks off paid and they can take that two weeks off any time in the year they can stagger it uh, which was great news, but then in some ways it threw up other questions. So I was just curious to know about UK, in your perspective, how you feel about UK Compassionate Leave, because I've had lots of different stories on my podcast. I've got my own experiences of what UK Compassionate Leave looks like. And then obviously Jack's Law comes into effect next month for parents that are bereaved of a child. Um, yeah, so um, obviously when, when I, I was at school when everything happened, but um, and I know that if something was to happen um, and I was to lose someone close to me, now I know my, my work would support me and give me give me time away. Um, I mean, obviously, two two weeks isn't isn't a long time, but I guess you have to th- also think about it from the perspective of of employers and that they can't lose someone for someone someone could be grieving for years and years and they can't lose someone for that time. But I think. Obviously, statutory leave is important, but I think it's more important that workplaces support someone, not just during a time of grief, but just on a day to day and ensure that people, people's mental health are, are cared for and um, uh, addressed when, when they are having issues. And someone might be able to take two weeks off um, and be be okay after that but um i think employees also need to understand that they they might not be completely focused on work and they shouldn't put pressures on them when they do come back to work yeah absolutely absolutely there needs to be a a holistic uh, approach to these things 
um, taking into account what the circumstances are, what the relationship was with the person that died. And obviously, yeah, two weeks isn't a long time. And you, that doesn't mean you're over it. <laughs> you know, it just means you had to, that's just the law. You get two weeks off because they, they can't give you months or years. Um, so, yeah, it does need to be holistic. And there isn't really a set, you know, that's just for parents at two weeks, everyone else. Um, and it's it's for parents that lose someone up until the age of eighteen. So if their child is nineteen or twenty or above that, they're not they're not entitled to that leave to that paid leave. Um, so I just it's something that I like to talk about because I think it's important to talk about that because I think employers can do better. I mean, some employers are great. I've got lots of stories on the podcast where people are like, no, my employer's got a really holistic approach. It's take as long as you want. I've also heard rumors that John Lewis run an amazing program when it comes to mental health and bereavement. But that's just a rumor that I heard. I don't know how true that is. I would love to have them on the podcast so they can talk about their policy. But there are lots of employers out there equally that will just give you one day off and be like, suck it up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely dependent on the sector you're in. And I think mm. there, are, there are certain sectors which generally put a lot more pressure on staff than other sectors. Um, mm. Often unnecessary pressure. I mean, the ones that spring to mind are sort of the, the accountancy firms and sort of the banking sector. Um, you, you hear stories about staff and grads working working 10-hour shifts, um, working overnight, sleeping in the office. Um, and it's, it's those fast-moving industries don't seem to have a care in the world for, for someone's mental health. Um, but it, it's, it's becoming a topic that's, that's seeping into sort of society now, and right so, um, with, with the help of some great charities like Mind and Young Minds, um, who, are, who are at the forefront of these discussions. Mm. Uh, and I think if you, if you look at um, sort of a, a number of sectors, they might not be doing enough, but I think I think that they are sectors are trying to address it the best they can. Um, but it's also important to to note that it's you can't have a blanket approach for all staff when it's completely dependent on a on an individual case by case basis. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I echo that. Uh, and I think it's really important that um, these things aren't just left to hu human resources to sort out because people managers have a lot of decision making in these things, um, in these circumstances. And that people managers, anyone that manages large groups of people, even if it's just one, that they really work on what that empathy and what that support should look like, actually take a great interest in that employee's mental health because I've often heard that things just fall through the cracks and some people manages because they've never dealt with something like that before in their life it's so alien to them that they're just like oh my god I don't want to go there I don't want to upset them I don't want to talk about it um you know it can manifest in in different ways but you're right uh, I, I echo that and I, I think some change is coming I think these those two weeks um that's a good sign and I think it's going in the right direction because let's face it before those two weeks it was nothing um so yeah yeah it's yeah. better than nothing mm. yeah I, I I just hope that it it changes for everyone you know not just parents that 
yeah, I mean, actually. like any type of change, it takes a little bit of time for it to sort of manifest okay. itself in the full picture. But I mean, parental statutory sort of compassionate leave is obviously important, but so is other types of leave. Um, I mean, someone could be close to an aunt and lose their aunt, and they might not get the leave that they need to cope to cope with it. Mm. Because but it happens. Yeah, because I mean, if you if you look at sort of British society and sort of Indian families and sort of BME communities in general, quite tight knit communities with big families, and and I know most of my sort of friends from who have either like African American African backgrounds or Asian backgrounds are, are close to aunts, cousins, second aunts, family friends who this is family, um, and losing someone like that be equally as impactful to someone's life as as it would be to lose there's a parent or a sibling or a, or, a, or a child so I, I think people also need to understand different cultures absolutely they do they do because it's a different setup in different communities and it's like grandparents are often like the backbone of many families asian families in particular at times um so, you know, the grandparents are often seen as parents almost. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And I think that change is coming. I can feel it. So <laughs> um, I have high hopes for the future, which kind of now brings me to the gratefulness challenge as we kind of uh, get to the end of the podcast. It's been really nice talking to you this evening. Thanks for having me on. It's been good to good to chat about my experience and um, various other things like Jack's Law. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you'll help many more men come forward to tell their story. So before we wrap up and go to the Gratefulness Challenge, would you like to share some special memories that you had of your father with us? Um, I just I just remember when we were living in America and in the summer, we'd um, we'd take we'd take holidays to sort of Florida or New York and stuff and we'd go on long road trips and we'd just be in the car, just us four, um, him and my mum in the front and um, me and my brother in the back and we'd just be sort of watching films, well me and my brother would be watching films and we'd just go on these holidays to the beach with family and with friends and just it's just those memories, I mean I remember, I mean the, the memory that sticks out to me at the moment is um, when we went on a holiday to Corfu and um, me and my dad were, were seasick when we were on a, on a trip, on a boat trip, um, and that, that was quite an amusing memory. Um, but I think it's just also the birthdays that we had, that me and my brother had, my dad would um, throw us sort of big parties and have all the family around, and those were those were memories that st- stick out in the mind. and. And you'd, you'd always have a video camera on hand, so I've got I've got all the recordings from when I was growing up of those of those parties and the family gatherings um, that that he had taken. So that those are really sort of great memories to to have on video for for, for us. That's lovely. That's nice. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really beautiful. Which now brings me to the gratefulness challenge. Do you know what this is? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with this part of the section. Okay. okay, so I like to do this thing at the end of the podcast where we say that we're grateful for one thing in the here and now, and it could be anything. It could be the smallest thing, the biggest thing, 
or you know it could be that you're locked down because of coronavirus um uh, although i don't think anyone's grateful for that right now um <laughs> it could be anything so do you want to go first or shall i um you can go first all Why right not? yeah give it a think um i don't know i haven't thought of mine okay well this is my second interview because we were on a break anyway after I released seven episodes and then my dad died. And so I extended that break because I just needed some time. Um, and then I released two other episodes. So I guess I'm just grateful for the fact that I'm here in my second interview with you. I'm grateful to be here with you and to have this conversation because you talked about your dad who died when you were 14 um, my dad died recently and I had a lot of time to really reflect about the importance of the father figure, which is something I've, I've never taken for granted. I was very close to my dad. He was like my best friend, which I know many people already know because I've talked about it on the podcast. I was incredibly close to my dad. Um, I'm glad that I can pick up this podcast. I think many people wondered whether I'd pick it up again. So I guess I'm grateful for that that I'm I'm here and I'm carrying on because for me this podcast isn't just a podcast it's a peer-to-peer support for people in BAME communities BME communities for people of color I guess you could say so that we can tell our stories and I'm grateful to be back your turn for I mean from my perspective I think it's at the moment a couple of things I mean Firstly, I think I, I'm just quite grateful for, for the family and friends around me and most recently um, my, my girlfriend as well who's, who came into my life a, a couple of years ago and has been immensely caring and understanding of, of my situation. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to, to have those people around me. And Shout out your girlfriend. Do you want to say her name? Or? Uh, yeah, her name's, uh, her name's Binal uh, or Binal. Um, Shout out to Binal. Yeah, uh, and um, and most recently with this current climate of coronavirus that we're living in, I'm just grateful to have plenty of food in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I get that. You said that this is a this is more than just a just a podcast. It's sort of a peer to peer support network. So if um, if anyone does want to want to get in touch with me, they can. Uh, message me on on social media generally available on sort of twitter um where they can find me on at the lawyer am um and if anyone just wants to talk or connect over social media i'm happy to do so um and give them advice about sort of grief or losing someone or even if they if they're thinking of pursuing a career in journalism i'm happy to give them advice on that that's amazing, Amma. Thank you so much. I think that a couple of people might be interested in hearing about a career in journalism. I know some of my guests are looking for work because they've graduated from university or they're soon to be graduating. So actually, I think they'll really appreciate getting in touch with you um, on that matter and also to connect with you on your own story and the experiences you shared with us this evening. Can you just shout out your social media handles once more? Uh, yeah, so I'm generally mostly available on Twitter. So it's at the lawyer. So that's T H E L A W Y E R, Amar, A M A R. Um, 
and that, that's generally the main social media that I use really okay wonderful thanks so much Amma for coming on here and talking to me this evening I really appreciate it thank you for thank you for having me on it's been it's been good to good to come on and talk about our experiences that was our guest Amar Mehta who was talking to me about his father who tragically died in 2008 Amar was only 14 years old shout out to Amar let's wish him love and happiness and continued success which brings me to say a massive thank you to our subscribers and our listeners. Early on in the year, we reached way over a thousand downloads. Thank you so much if that was you. And if you tapped that star rating and left us a generous review. However, for those of you that forgot, you can jump back into the Apple podcast and tap the star rating. It takes one second. I know many of you said we don't have an iPhone, so how do we do it? Well, your friends and family members might, so reach out to them and perhaps you can drop the star rating and review via their phone. We really need the support. We're a very small podcast with no funding or big brand backing. It means that our guests and I get a further reach in this very necessary and important conversation. If you want to reach out to us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, the handle is at Bereavement Room. On Instagram, it's at Bereavement Room. Or if you want to get in touch with me personally, on Twitter, it's at Kulsima Ali. We are looking for more guests, so if you're interested in appearing on the podcast, do DM me. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Kulsima Ali.